Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Anybody, anybody tried that 2022 thing yet or is that? <laughs> I get that wrong for about a month. So, <clears throat> Well, um, 2021, it seemed like it lasted forever and yet it was a click of your fingers, wasn't it? Amazing how these years are going by. So I was uh, pondering, you know, on... On New Year's, it's fresh. It's going brand new, right? Maybe somebody, maybe a new direction or a steady direction, or there's just a sense of we need encouragement to get off on the right foot, right? Especially after 2021. <laughs> that's, that's like we stumbled, stumbled, and fell down a couple of times in my own life. But so I was just, I was just trying to think. Where, you know, what's a place for us to to get rolling, get started, get moving in the right direction? And uh, I guess the thing that kept coming back to mind was uh, one of the things that we just take our Bibles and turn to the to the book of Esther, to the book of Esther. And <clears throat> there's something that we've known as maybe the most the favorite verse, shall we say, of of Esther. And yet it's I want to I want to start here. We're going to read chapter four, but that's probably not where we're going to end up <clears throat> because there's something that happened way back in, let me me just, let's just start reading. How's that? Esther chapter 4, and verse 1 is where we'll start. We're just, we're just diving in here because we'll get to verse 14, and there's, that's a verse that maybe is the most famous of this little book of Esther. One thing that is interesting is, before we start reading, um, there's something that really sticks out to me, and and to you, and probably to anyone, if you go through the Word of God, um, there's something missing from Esther. You know, it's, isn't it a wonderful story, though? It's fantastic, right? I mean, you just, you just see these characters, and, 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 and you're in it. If you study the, the book of Esther, I mean, boom, you're right there, because you're, you're, you're just sucked into the drama. There, there's something missing, though. Yeah, not one time is God's name mentioned in the book of Esther. Not, not one time. And yet, if <laughs> he's everywhere. He's literally everywhere. And one of the words that uh, comes to mind is providence. And we think of, uh, in fact, I might even give you, this is a, from a man by the name of Augustus Hopkins Strong. He said this about the providence of God. Continuous agency of God by which he makes all events of the physical and moral universe fulfill the original design with which he created it. And that was fairly lengthy. It was really spot on. But he left with this last sentence, which is the one I want you to get a handle on. <laughs> it's God's attention concentrated everywhere. That's as good a definition I've ever heard of providence. And plus, it's short. God's attention concentrated everywhere. I just think of that. And you think about God's providence, how he works through and brings things together at what would be a most inopportune time or a very opportune time. I was just thinking, in fact, I got a letter... Uh, Lisa gave it to me at noon while I was studying, and, and it was from a, a pastor in Livingston. And uh, the chances of meeting Lisa and I at the town and country grocery store in Belgrade, Montana, is a very narrow, narrow window. And we were just loading up, and here comes this couple, pastor and his wife, coming across the parking lot at just the time when I was just loading the groceries in the car. And he said this in the letter. He, 
he wrote a quick note and, and passed on a bulletin. We know, obviously know a lot of the folks from back there in Livingston. And he said this, we're so thankful for the providence of God in bringing us together on that day. That truly is it. Because he encouraged us, uh, he and his wife encouraged us, and I could just tell from what he wrote back that we encouraged it. That, that was the providence of God encouraging one another. And, and you know what I'm talking about. He just say, that was real. No, that was the providence of God. And this book of Esther is so filled with the providence, so you can't possibly miss it. Whether his name is stated or not, he's everywhere. So with that in mind, let's just dive in for a moment. Esther chapter 4, we'll begin reading at verse 1, and uh, we'll read the first 14 verses. When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes, put on the sackcloth with ashes, went out into the midst of the city, cried with a loud and a bitter cry, and came even before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it her. Then was the queen exceedingly grieved. And she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him, but he received it not. Then called Esther for Hatach one of the king's chamberlains, whom he had appointed to attend unto her and gave him a commandment to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. Then Hatach went back to Mordecai unto the street of the city, which was before the king's gate. And Mordecai told him of all that had happened unto him and of the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. Also, he gave them the copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them and to show it to Esther. And to declare it unto her and to charge her that she should go in, that she should go in unto the king and make supplication unto him and make request before him for her people. And Hatach came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Again, Esther spake unto Hatach, gave him commandment unto Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king in the inner court who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death except such as whom the king should hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called, I'm sorry, I have not been called to come in unto the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house, more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, Then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. May God add a special blessing in your reading of his word. Let us just pause for prayer before we begin our study. Father, it is so good to be able to surround ourselves and gather around the word of God. We thank you. Today, Father, as we are united, as we want to praise and worship and to study your word, we would ask that today, Father, the Holy Spirit would exclusively be our teacher, that we would hear the Spirit's voice. And, Father, that literally the word would speak to us because of its power. And, and Father, we know you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're speaking about a time frame, Father, that literally is 2,500 years ago, and yet it's so pertinent as to human behavior, and how you are still the same. Now, Father, we would ask that you take our hearts, our minds, allow us to be so engaged and so engrossed in you, Father, 
that we would have never been closer than these moments that we have at this time. Thank you for what you will accomplish, for we glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we read that uh, wanting to get to the end of verse 14, and that probably, if there's a verse that you know in Esther, it's probably that one. Okay? And that was the one that came to my mind as, we were, as I was just pondering about opening a brand new year, where we as Christians, we as a church, how should we view what we're doing? And you know what? You are here for such a time as this. You're not out of place. You weren't born too early or too late. You're here because exactly right now, God wants to use you. Just as Esther and Mordecai were in exactly the right place at the right time. And that's where my mind was going. And we'll rehearse the story about Esther a little bit, just just to hold context. But there's something that's much more important, if you will, than to just be at the right place at the right time. And you're wondering, what in the world would that be? That's right what I want you to be thinking about. But you may know the story in chapter 1 of Esther. There's a man by the name of King Ahasuerus. And he would be, another name would be Xerxes I. His father was Darius. And you remember Darius uh, from other scripture references. And Darius's father, or Xerxes' grandfather, was a man by the name of Cyrus the Great. And under Cyrus... Literally, he commanded, and maybe not the right word, I shouldn't say commanded, but he allowed the Jews after 70 years of captivity, of which Jeremiah spoke, and Daniel looked towards that day as being in, this, in the, the, uh, the Babylonian Empire, that Cyrus the Great, being a Persian, he was the first one to come on scene, he said, you know what, you guys can go back to your homeland. You can do that. And here we have his grandson now serving on the throne, and he started reigning in 486 B.C., his father, Darius, um, and these are things that maybe aren't necessarily spelled out Esther, and yet it adds to the sense of the understanding and the motives that really take place. Now, Darius had been defeated rather roundly in Greece. Greece was an up-and-coming New World Empire. It actually took another 50 or 60 years for them to come on the scene, if you will, to become this world power. But you could start to see already the sense of disintegration of the power of the Medes and Persians as they would go over to the, to the Greece, and they kind of got their butts kicked, okay? And, and Darius, is, I'm sorry, Darius was the one, and then he was going to ramp up, go back, and really show them who the Medes and Persians were, and lo and behold, he died. So his son Xerxes, he is actually going to be the one that's going to avenge his father's defeat in Greece. And the interesting part is that during all of this preparing and this sequestering and the planning and strategy that's taking place, it's literally right at the front end of chapter 1. He, for six months, it says, were gathered in a... It doesn't say that, but there's a strategy meeting. He's bringing his officials together so that they are planning and they are going to take those Greece guys and show them who's boss. And it's all culminated at the very end of which you come to chapter 1, where there's a week-long feast. It's like at the end of this six-month brain trust that they're celebrating. And they've gotten drunk, and they've made themselves look very foolish. And at this point in time, Xerxes, who is a very, um, shall we say, sensual, prideful, arrogant king... Shows his true colors, and then at this point, in his drunken stupor, and who knows how many others in the court, he says, Queen Vashti, 
should be coming out here and he's basically going to show her off. And she says, no. (laughs) To which he says, now what do we do? And so the consensus was, well, you're going to have to make her go away or every household in the entire Medes and Persians empire will have this same thing happen. The wives will not submit to their husbands. And this is horrifying. And so, of course, (laughs) we're all laughing. And and you know what? Ahasuerus or Xerxes, um, he he was full on with that because, again, it made him look important. He was amazing. The man was absolutely a pushover for, for flattery or to boost his ego. I mean, he could not receive that at any level. You'll find it all through Esther. You could just lead him around with flattery or pumping his ego. Well, sure enough, that's what he did. He banished Vashti. There's actually a thought process that Vashti may have been pregnant with their son Artaxerxes, which served after Xerxes was assassinated. Now, whether that's true or not, I, I certainly can't say. Because it seems if you study and you look for the birth date of Artaxerxes, it seems to be more unknown than known. So at any rate, though, the point of the matter being is he has banished his wife, the queen, from the kingdom. Now, in between chapters 1 and chapter 2, he takes off in this military expedition. It doesn't say that, but it's, but it's interesting on chapter 2. We'll go there in a moment. It just kind of brings everything back to back home. But he was gone for probably at least a couple of years trying to have these military escapades against Greece. And it started out with a fairly small victory. And then he, again, got pummeled by the Greeks. And so he came home. What do you do when you come home? You do something that has nothing to do with where you just got whooped. So here we go. Let's go to chapter 2 for a moment. We'll just read a few verses. I, I do want to move rather quickly because, believe it or not, chapter 4, uh, chapter four, verse 14, for who knoweth whether thou art come to a kingdom such as a time as this, has nothing to do where I want to end up today. And you are saying, oh my goodness, are we going to move that slowly? Well, hopefully not. But it says in chapter 2, verse 1 of Esther, it says, after these things. Now, it wasn't just after the fact of Vashti being banished from the kingdom. But it was after the fact that Ahasuerus had been off on military expeditions. And let's continue. The wrath of King Ahasuerus... Now, he was a very, that was the other thing I want you to know about Xerxes or Ahasuerus. Very, very quick-tempered. It was amazing how quick and volatile this man was. He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. Then said the king's servants that ministered on him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king. So literally, in this period of time that could have been anywhere from two to up to four years, because it's thought that uh, Queen Esther did not become queen until 479 B.C. So there's a period of time, obviously, from when Vashti was banished to where we are here in this chapter, chapter 2, verse 1. So the, his, uh, his chamber, all of his servants, and let's think about this for a moment. Uh, some period of time had taken away. Now, he comes back and he says, what's your advice? I need a queen because I've just got whooped in a military escapade. I need a woman. Now, that's not the way it's stated there, but I'm paraphrasing fairly well because that's really his, his focus is come, completely come home. What is it that's really something that I can handle? I need a woman. And so now let's think from the advisor's position. One of the things they probably wouldn't say, I hope that you'll follow my rationale, well, why don't you just reinstate Vashti? I bet she's all for it now. It's been a couple of years. She's probably, you know, she's feeling better about you, and you obviously are looking. 
Now, why wouldn't they say that? I have a sneaking suspicion that those are the same ones that said you should banish Vashti. What do you think Vashti would do when she got back into power and she and Mr. King were side by side on some evening? And said, you know, the first thing we should probably do is get rid of your advisors. They're jerks. Okay? So they didn't take that opportunity. They said, you know what? You should start over brand new and fresh. Let's go through the entire kingdom. And it's thought that there was probably about 50 million women in the Medes and Persians kingdom. I'm, I'm sorry, 50 million citizens. So 25 million, you know, what? just doing rough math, would be women. How would you like to sort through that? And they got it all the way down to 400 and this is just exterior, obviously. You understand what I'm saying. They're, they're looking at their looks. They're looking if they're young and all of the things that would make them very attractive to Mr. King who wants a new queen. And guess who's in the middle of that 400? And Esther. Yeah, well, for goodness sakes. And so we're, we're sort of brought into that family history. Um, and again, it's very interesting, isn't it? As we'll continue through this, the things that we need going into the year 2022... Oftentimes, there's some tough times that go with it to set us up to where we're going. Let me just walk that through for a moment. Now, Esther's childhood or upbringing was not easy. In fact, let's go, let's go back. Where did I leave you in chapter 2? Let's continue on there. Um, verse 5. Esther chapter 2, verse 5. Now, in Shushan, the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Remember those last few names there. It'll come in really handy as we get to Haman. Just, just hang on to that for a moment. But anyway, it says in verse 6, who had been carried from, away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, son of, I'm sorry, king of Judah, when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. Now, it's interesting to note, these Jews, Mordecai and at least part of his family, did not return back to the land of Israel. They stayed after the captivity, actually probably migrated. If they were out in Babylon, now they've actually moved away. They're in Shushan is where they're at now. Okay. The other thing that's interesting is, is it seems early on in this story, I, don't, I, can't, I can't pounce here, but it seems as such that not very many people, if any, knew that they were Jews. Now, do you remember how Daniel handled that when he came on board into Babylon immediately? They knew who he was right away from his diet, from his God who he worshipped, his, all of those things he brought with them, with, well, I'm saying them, Daniel and his friends. It seems as such that Mordecai and Esther, it was somewhat of a secretive thing. And again, I want, I'm not trying to throw anything at them, but it would be interesting how easy it is, the longer you're away from being in the right place doing the right thing, the easier it is to be compromised and to fall away from traditions that are very God-honoring. Okay? Now, it is interesting, though, as the pressure mounts, there's no question where they stand. So I want to be very careful. But, but at the beginning, nobody knows you're a Jew. Now, if you're a Jew and you're in a foreign land, they know you're a Jew just by your very traditions, the food, the ceremonies, all of that sort of thing. At any rate, let's keep going. So we have Mordecai that's, that's introduced to us. Then it says in verse 7, And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. Now, what does an uncle's daughter make them, Mordecai and Esther? Cousins, okay? So they are cousins. And let's keep reading. For she had neither father nor mother, 
and the, ma- and the maid was fair and beautiful, who Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. You think things were easy for Esther growing up? Uh, probably not. And yet, Mordecai stepped to the plate, took the responsibility, and you can tell the love that they have for one another through this, through this entire thing. In fact, uh, we'll, some of these details, we're, we're just going to move along, but at any rate, she's, part of the four, she's one of 400. And then, as they prepared for literally one year, 12 months, she, just like Daniel, actually, the, the overseer, the chamberlain that was overseeing this whole, and it, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a beauty pageant. I think it was more almost like a kidnapping. In other words, it wasn't like, hey, we want you all to come to Shushan, and then we're going to pick out the best one, and you will be Xerxes' queen. I don't think it was like that at all. I think they just said, let's see, let's study. You, young lady, are coming with us, and you are going to enter. I don't think there was no contest at all. Because quite honestly, you see what happened to the other 399. Spent one night with the king, and they were part of a harem, never to be seen again, unless the king would call her back. I mean, there, there's, no, there's no beauty pageant going on here. This is literally for the whims and the lustful things of one man that rules the world. That's what it is. She's one of those, and, and you find that Mordecai, he's right there as close as he can get legally, wondering what's happening. You can just see this man looking out for his, I'm going to call him, I call her his daughter. He really, really raised her. Okay? So things go along, and then I would have to say in God's providence that for whatever reason, however she was seen, but you can see her character. You can see that she's a, because how do you get special attention from the one that is treating, he's there to take care of all 400 for a year. How do you race to that level? There's some character advantages and attributes that certainly would have... Just like Daniel. Remember him? There was an attraction. There was something that got them close to moving in that direction. So she... And again, we have to move quickly. She becomes the new queen. She is... I mean, she is so far out. It wasn't even like, hmm, we're probably going to have to do this. I just don't know. We're going to have to take another couple of months. No, she just stood out. She was so amazing and so glaring in the differences between her and the others. He said, you are so far ahead. And then you think, well, how how does that all work? I mean, what is going on here? What do you think Mordecai is thinking? Why would that happen? How does this work? What is going on here? And a couple years go past. In this book, actually, years go more than you think they do. And then there's a man by the name of Haman. He is everything that a good, reputable, wonderful man could ever be. He is the opposite of that person. Let's watch and have him described for us for a moment. Oh, there's a couple things we should mention, though. Because it's amazing how they all fit together. One of the things that happened was Mordecai was actually brought into some sense of, I would say, a level of authority. He was meeting at the, at the city gate. That's where a lot of uh, legal matters were settled, and he must somehow the king saw him as being valuable to him in that position. Let's, let's read this now, because this will come in important in a little bit. Esther chapter 2, verse 21. 
In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Teresh, of those which kept the door were angry, or wroth, and sought to lay, hold, lay hand on King Ahasuerus. Now, what we don't know, is I'm, and I'm just making this up, but it's amazing how many things it could be. These two guys were close enough they could have assassinated him. Okay? And all that, I've told you already, but actually what happened to Xerxes about another 12 years later? He was assassinated. Okay? But these two guys, now, who would know? They may have been friends or family of Vashti. Can you imagine the animosity within the palace, quite honestly, on that whole thing? I, I don't know that, but you can see there's lots of reasons or ways that someone get get mad at the king. Verse 22, the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen, and, the, and Esther certified the king the king thereof in Mordecai's name. When the inquisition was made, the matter it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. So here you have this Mordecai, who is the cousin to the queen now, which I don't know if anyone at this point knows the connection between Mordecai and Esther. I suspect not. Okay? He declares that, hey, there's two guys that are look, they're hunting your head. Uh, I just want you to know. So he tells Esther, and Esther... Uh, hey, dear old Xerxes, uh, there's a couple guys by the name of these two that you better watch out for. They're, 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 they're looking to take you out. And so they do an inquisition. Sure enough, he's, he's spot on. Now, something that's very important, and it's amazing how the Medes and Persians chronicle everything. We know more about their kingdom than anyone else because they wrote everything down. You remember what they said? No one could ever, uh, how did they say that? No one could ever break the laws of the Medes and Persians. Well, they'd never miss them either because they wrote them all down. And what should have happened right now is that Mordecai should have been rewarded. I mean, that's, that's how they did it immediately. But it didn't happen right then. Okay? So this guy by the name of Haman... Let's find him in chapter 3 of Esther. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. Now, if you were to read in chapter 1, you'd see there was 127 provinces. It appears that this is probably the prime minister over the rest of the kingdom. There's like Ahasuerus, and then this guy, this Haman. Okay? Now, did you catch that one word, Agagite? Where did he come from? Chances are very good if you go back to, uh, let's see, we've got to go to 1 Samuel, I believe it is. If you remember Saul, one of the things that actually he lost the kingdom, he lost the kingdom because he did not do something that God had asked him to do. Now, as you're turning, um, trying to think, is it in chapter 15? Yeah, well, ch- turn to chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. And as you're turning there, uh, I want you to know that the Amalekites were a tribe that actually... Uh, would have descended from Esau. And you remember the friction between Jacob and Esau. Well, the Amalekites, upon the Israelites returning or getting out of Egypt, they attacked the backside of the children of Israel as they were moving. And because of that, God condemned them. He said, you will be conquered and slaughtered. There will be none left. And so one of the things that Saul was given as, a, as a, a job, a mission, was to take this king, which we find in 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we're just going to dive in here for a moment. But it says in verse 7, Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah until they come to Shur, that is over against Egypt. Verse 8, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. 
And Saul and the people spared Agag. And it goes on to say that he didn't do what God asked him to do. The very fact that you have, what was that guy's name in Esther now? Haman. Haman, more than likely, comes from the Agagites, of which Agag was the king of the Amalekites. Well, that's pretty interesting, but let's even look at how this rivalry between Mordecai and Haman get to a larger level. Uh, Who is Saul in the sense of what tribe did he come from? Who was his father? It was Kish. He was a Benjamite. What did we learn about Mordecai? Remember those words I asked you to remember? He came from the tribe of Benjamin. So actually we have, we have an Esther, this thing going on between the same almost the thing, an Amalekite versus a Benjamite. It's almost like reliving this whole thing. And if you don't think they knew their history, you better believe it. Why do you think Haman hated the Jews so, so desperately? Because of his background. It's amazing how all of this context adds to the, the, the drama, if you will, in what takes place in Esther. Let's go back to Esther now. Esther. <clears throat> Haman has this great... Oh, by the way, uh, do you know what? This Haman is being prime minister. There's one guy that will not bow down to him. Guess who his name is? Mordecai. Right? And it drives him wild. He can't stand it. Now, what do we know about Haman from that? He is one arrogant, prideful guy. In fact, he is looking out only for himself all day long, every week of every year. And it drives him wild. But he says, you know what? Just to kill Mordecai would not be enough. I want to kill all the Jews. Do you see? He knew that. Haman knew Mordecai was a Jew. He knew all of that. So he goes about this decree and he sets it up. And he says, you know what? And he goes through the lot system. It's amazing. Again, I think the providence of God is beyond all of this. So if you think about it, he, he devises this decree that he's going to kill all the Jews. Now, I'm not talking just about in Shushan. No, if, if you read it, he was going to kill the Jews in the entire known world. What would have that done to all of the promises? Do you see who Haman was really taking on? And you never will win if you take on God. Can't happen. Hitler's tried it. I could show you. I, you could go through every single person that has ever tried to eliminate either the Bible or the Jews, and they do not win. Nor will they. In fact, if you want to see somebody that, if you want to know what the Antichrist looks like, I think Haman is as close as you'll find. Now, he's just a, he's just a physical human being. But you can see what he's done with power. It'll be the same with the Antichrist. He will be so arrogant, so prideful, and very, very powerful. Don't miss that. In fact, one of the things how he buys this, or he throws this decree to the king, to Ahasuerus, is this. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm basically going to bribe. I don't, no, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean bribe. Once we kill all the Jews, we'll have all of this plunder. All of their wealth will come to the kingdom. In fact, I'm going to give you 10,000 talents of silver. That's my part. If you do this, if you sign off on this, King Xerxes, I'm going to give you 10,000 talents of silver. Now, uh, how many of you dealt in talents this week? Did you go down to the Napa store, pay your bill in talents, or did you go to the grocery store? And here's a couple talents. Actually, that number is massive. Now, he said 10,000 talents of silver. The other thing I want to add to that is if you start to look at what is perceived to be the national economy or the national incoming coming into that kingdom, it was only 15,000 talents per year. This was a massive, massive influx. Now, keep in mind, why would that be popular? Xerxes just got whooped militarily. He had some losses that he was dealing with. But back to the question, 
How much is 10,000 talents of silver? You guys want to take a guess? Maybe your Bible has it, if you've got a study Bible. Okay, it's a lot bigger number than that. Oh, okay, okay, fair. Um, that's stout. Yeah, not... Oh, oh, no, that's probably right. Yeah, that's probably right. Because it is 375 ton of silver. That's talking, right? 375 ton of silver is what Mr. Haman has promised the king, Ahasuerus, to get rid of... Now, he doesn't name them. Did you know? Again, we're, we're moving too quickly. If we were going to study through the book, you would catch it. But I'm hoping to get enough interest in you that this week, because your homework is, to read the book of Esther. Okay? So 375 tons. That's not pounds. It's tons of silver. I don't even know what a ton of silver looks like. 276 million. Today's value is 276 million. That should get some king's attention. And, and you know what? He, but what he doesn't do, though, is he does not name who it is. He said there's this people that are really literally breaking every law of the kingdom, and they cannot be trusted, and we need to eliminate them through the entire kingdom. What do you say? And by the way, I'll give you 375 ton of silver. Okay. <laughs> because we find our Mr. Our Mr. King, that is the Mr. Prideful, arrogant sort of a guy, he's very impetuous. He just makes decisions. Have you seen so far how his life is completely messed up because he makes very ra- irrational decisions? In fact, I want, to, I want to give you one more of his irrational. This is so crazy, it's even hard. I read it several times to see if he was actually right. Upon his military uh, um, conquest, there was a river which I failed to remember the name, but he had to build a bridge over it to get his troops from one side into this area where he wanted to go into Greece. So they built this bridge. But before they could use it, here comes this massive weather event and wipes it out. He is so angry <laughs> that, are you ready? It just doesn't make any sense. So he's got people actually going down there and beating the water with whips. Like it's, you know, what, what's that going to do? And then they got hot irons and they're going to, you know, uh, what? And it, it's just the bizarre, most bizarre thing. But that's what his temper was like and how quick he was to do stupid stuff. This one here, he didn't ask any questions. He didn't know nothing. He just had Haman, his guy, and he's going to pay him 10, I'm sorry, a 375 ton of silver. What? Well, why not? So he gives him his ring. Now, again, a king probably should never give anybody his ring because anything that the guy does in Prince, that's what it becomes law. That's how dumb this king is. I'm sorry. I just have to say it. So Haman does exactly what he wants to do, makes it set up, and then that actually brought us into, what brought us into where we were in chapter 4. The decree is made. Mordecai reads it. He sees it. Now, you can tell something that's going on. Esther has no idea what's taking place. Because you get inside the palace, those politics that are in the palace stay there, and nothing from the outside comes in. Because one thing we don't want to do is we don't want to make a king feel uneasy to be out of his element. We want him to be happy. Because if the king's happy, everybody's happy. And no one knows that. And Mordecai, he sends a message. He says, Esther, it's bad stuff. In fact, I'm, I'm, well, you could, he was in sackcloth. He was mourning. And now if you show up like that at your job at the king's gate, you're dead. That's how serious he was. In fact, Esther, we read it. Did you, and it was kind of like jumping in, but she was so concerned when she heard that. She, here, put these clothes on or you're going to be dead. And he says, I'm not even going to respond to that. 
you need to get after this. You need to get in front of that king and you need to make a, a petition for us Jews. And then she says, or I'm sorry, um, she says, well, you do know, obviously, that if I show up and I'm not asked, the chances of me, you know, I, I don't even know it's a 50, 50, I would say it was more like a 10%. And I have no way of saying that. But the chances of you coming to a king without being asked, you're dead. I mean, the, there, was there anybody even that didn't get that done? I, I don't know, but you can just tell the way it's worded and then the whole outset of who he is, right? I'm just going to say that she must have been beautiful. Because it said she prepared herself, but it was interesting. She said something after her, I, I, sometimes I want to call him, call him her uncle, and it's not, it's cousin. But when Mordecai told her, could it be that you were here for such a time as this? Now you start to look and you travel backwards, you see the providence of God, how he just, I'm going to use the word miraculous. From our perspective, you just see things, these lined up by itself, it, impossible impossible but you can just see how god worked in putting her at just this place for just this time but there's something interesting though from esther's perspective what are her chances of actually being of any value very slim and losing your life besides so mordecai old buddy old pal even though you've raised me and i treat you as my father and you treat me as your daughter i want you to know that this isn't good for for maybe me and everyone right but she does something. Let's go to, uh, let's continue on our, uh, I didn't read this in chapter 4, but this was after he said that. Are you here for such a time as this? Verse 15 of chapter 4, then Esther bade them return, Mordecai, with this answer. Go and gather all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast you for me. Neither eat or drink for three days that I and my maidens will do the same. Okay, stop there. That tells me a lot about her. Now, it doesn't say prayer, but... Why would you fast on a deal like this without prayer? It's, it's included within this whole thing. Right. It's there. It's, it's just it's living large. And so she, she says, okay, Mordecai, that's great. If I'm here for such a time as this, let's go to God. I, I want to go to him, and I want you to go to him, and I want all of the people that you know through the entire, not only Shushan, but I think, I think this spread like wildfire, quite honestly. We're dead meat. Now, the interesting part, which I didn't tell you, is that this was the first month of the year. And so Haman, because he's such a godless, pagan man, he goes before the astrologers or whomever else, and he's got lots out. He casts lots to find out what would be the day to kill all the Jews. Well, interestingly enough, it was nearly a full year down the road, as far away you could actually get and still be in a calendar year. So I'm thinking, well, that gives, you know, and he, from his perspective, well, it gives me more time to, you know, get ready. But it also gave the Jews a lot more time to thwart his plan. In this time frame, this is all taking place. So that's exactly what happens. They pray. They fast. Esther prepares herself. How nervous would you be? Now, you haven't seen the king for over, she said, for over a month. Okay? Can you feel the tension rising? Can you feel there's no easy going on here, Right? Uh, yeah, we're here for such a time as this. This is now. I want I want us to just slip in contemporarily for ourselves. This is January second, twenty twenty two, and when I make a statement, could it be that you are here for such a time as this? And I'm saying that in regards to where we are spiritually in our nation. It's a disaster. We have no leadership whatsoever at any level, there, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that we are we are totally falling apart at every level. But just being here, just uh, that's not enough, is it? 
That's not enough. We're starting to peel back a little bit, and we're seeing what Esther's made of. She says, first of all, before I do anything, Mordecai, I want to fast and pray. We're going to do it from our end of the palace, and you guys please do that on the outside. You're starting to see something that's important to us as well. Just because we're here at such a time as this means nothing. Now, it's a nice verse, isn't it? And by the way, I'm not trying to diminish it in any way or shape or form, because we are here for such a time as this. But we want to get behind that. We want to get behind that much deeper, much, much deeper. She prepares herself, and she goes into the king. <laughs> I can't imagine the tension that must have been going on. I mean, you talk about your heart fluttering and the stomach, right, turning and churning. It had to be. And the king puts his scepter out. <laughs> and he says, what do you want? Oh, this is starting off great. Should we just blurt it out right now? Now, this is where I think the fasting and prayer takes place. This is why it's needed for us today, too. Too often we react to situations we haven't prayed enough about. Now, you know if you read the rest of the story, we'll relay it. But if she would have blurted out right now, my people, the Jews, are going to be completely destroyed and disintegrated at the hands of Haman, your prime minister. Is there anything that you can do to do that? I think it would have totally been ill-placed. It would not have been the right moment. would not have been the right... And she knew that. Because what did she say? She said, well, my greatest wish is for you and Haman to come to a banquet that I actually literally have done right now. So I would ask that you would come right now to my quarters, and I want you to engage and enjoy the feast that I've set for you too. It's brilliant. And plus, I still say it's listening to God's timetable. Have you seen, as we've unfolded this... This story about Esther, it's not moving quickly. Have you ever sometimes said, you know, God is, he's just seems so late all the time. But he never is, but he's never early. This would be the same thing. Just one step at a time. Once, and his providence is just amazing within this story. So the king, well, sure, that's great. Okay? Now, he's not a very patient man. That's the part that I would have been a little bit bothered by. But we're eating, right? So he goes, and Haman, he's feeling like a big, big man here because there's only three people in the room, essentially, outside of the servants. And to be included as the prime minister within the king and the queen in their small talk because he's leaning, okay, 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 here we are. What is it you want even up to half the kingdom? Well, she said, actually, what I'm really impressed, what I would really be impressed if you and Haman could come again to a feast tomorrow, and then I'll tell you. Oh, my goodness, Right? And Haman, he goes home just feeling, I mean, awesome. He's bragging to his family, I got, I got the king right in my hand. In fact, I think I'll be the next in line. You can see how he's thinking, right? But Mordecai, guess what, on the way out, he sees him once again. And Mordecai won't give him the time of day. And he said, enough's enough. I'm going to hang that dirty rat tomorrow. I'm going to build a gallows tonight. And he did. Think of that. Now, think of that. Kind of an out... Well, what the world? Now, on that particular night, King Xerxes couldn't sleep. He forgot to take his melatonin. 
And he arises and he says to his servants, now you could do a lot of stuff, couldn't you? I mean, think of all the stuff a king could ask for. But he says this, he gets this, this is the next closest thing to melatonin, I'm convinced. Why don't you bring the chronicles out and we'll just read through them. That should put you to sleep in about five seconds. And the servant, whoever he was, God bless him because God was using him. And it's amazing. Did you know there's a lot of little people that hate Tatch? Remember, he's, he, Esther and Mordecai never got back. What if he couldn't have been trusted? Do you see all of those things of which you can play a part of doing the right things for the right reason at the right time? Well, anyway, let's, let's move on. So here you have this, here you have this servant. And he, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's volumes, right? Because they write everything down. And he says, hmm, I wonder which one I should take. I think I'll take this one. He cracks it open, and on that particular night, before he falls asleep, that is King Xerxes, he actually reads to him that here's this Mordecai guy that actually told about two guys who were trying to take his life, and no, we did not reward him. I don't think he slept the rest of the night. In fact, I'm convinced he didn't, because who's coming first in the morning to take Mordecai's head? Because he is going, that's his first request in the morning, and he's there early, Mr. Haman. King Xerxes... I want, no, stop, stop, Haman. I've got a request of you. What would you do for a man that honored the king and literally gave everything he had to make sure that my life was safe? And he's so vain, Haman. He thought it was him. Yeah, he's talking about me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I'd get the best, the best robes and I think I'd get a horse and I'd get somebody. He's probably thinking, now he's probably thinking, and have Mordecai lead me around because he couldn't get him to do anything on his own, right? I mean, I don't know that, but you know, he's so vain. And the king says, that is fantastic. I'll tell you what you do right now, Haman. You go saddle that horse. You go put the robes on Mordecai, the Jew, because we need to reward him. Uh, Can you see Haman melting and wilting? You can just see him. uh, You know what? That's a lot of way pride happens. Remember, where is that at? Uh, Pride cometh before the fall. Boy, if this wasn't a wake-up sign, you know what? And right now, if, if, if Haman right now, right now at this level, literally would have just, I'm using the word repent, but at least would have come to his senses. I believe that's as far as it would have went. Repentance is amazing in what it can do. But he didn't. You know, you know, you know the whole story. So <laughs> I don't even know how he could stand it. He takes him through the whole city. And Mordecai, what did he do? This is, this is, this is humility on display also. He just went back to his, to his job. No, no, no bragging, no bloating, no gloating, none of that stuff. He just goes back to what he was doing. That is humility. And where did Haman go? He couldn't hide and get far enough away from that place. He goes home and he dispels all of this, displays all of this for his family. And they say, you know what? You're toast, buddy. That wasn't the words they, but you know, you get it. And just as they were kind of, you know, grieving and getting through all of this, here comes two of the king's eunuchs. You've got a feast to come to. Uh, we're here to take you. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> he doesn't know that this is his last meal. Now, is that, is that not the providence of God working? But the really cool part is that the people of God were tuned in to what God was doing. That takes prayer. And there's a word I haven't mentioned yet today because this is where we want to get to. This is what we need in 2022, and we're just about to get there, but not quite. And you know Haman, he goes off to the feast. And once again, early, I'm sure, in the feast, Xerxes leaned over to Esther and says, Okay, 
up to half the kingdom. In other words, I'll, I'll, I'll grant you almost anything you could possibly ask because that's how special you are to me. Just name it. And she unloads this right in front of him, which is exactly what she wanted to do in just the perfect setting. So there'd be no innuendos. There's nobody that's not absent. Everybody's involved is right here. Isn't that good? Oh, that really, really good. Hard, but really good. And the king must have just been totally, you know, I mean, just like, we know what it really did is it put him on the seat as well because he's responsible. It was his ring that made that thing happen. And what does he do? He, he's, rah, he's mad, right? So he's out walking around the garden. And Haman knows the only chance he has is to plead for mercy from the queen. I mean, that, that's logical. But I would have probably done it while the king was in the room. Because <laughs> I don't know what he was doing. He was, on his, he was on the ground, and whether he was clutching your legs or what, he's, you know, he, but he's crying for mercy. And you know when the king came in. What are you going to do? You're going to literally assault her in front of me? And that, it was over. He was done. In fact, within a very short time, he was hung on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. Isn't that something? Ooh. See, when God's in charge. Now, here's a question we want to ask. I was going to save it for later, but it's not a question whether God's in charge of the world. That's not even, that's not important. What is really important and where you're involved is, is God in charge of my life? Ah, that's different, isn't it? See, that's personal and that's something we can do something about. Is God in charge? Well, of course he is. Here's another. I mean, you you can't make this stuff up, right? I mean, it's so crazy. It's just like America today where we're at. I mean, if you just watch this demise, you couldn't make it happen any quicker or any more bizarre. It's ridiculous. And yet it follows what's happening in Romans chapter 1. When a nation or a people will literally just spit in God's face and worship the creature more than the creator. This is what we get. You reap what you sow. And this is amazing. This story of Esther, you reap what you sow. Haman got everything that he, that he sowed in many fold. Esther and Mordecai, as they, and you see, did you see this? The more challenges, the more climactic it came, do you know what they depended on? It wasn't themselves. They went to God. They went to God. In fact, at this end, right now, at this juncture, everybody knows that Mordecai and Esther are Jews. They have totally made the world known to that. And then the rest of the story as it plays out, it's amazing. The 12th and 13th of March is actually celebrated on each given year by the Jews. It's called the Feast of Purim. And Pure, or Purim, is the casting of lots. It all ties back to this story and the fact that the Jews were spared by Esther's I would just say petition before the king and Mordecai. It's, all, it's a God thing. It's not about any person. That'll be the same thing in the United States of America. It won't be a person. It'll be a God that is listening to prayers of his own. But we've got to, before we do that, and there's a, there's a level here. I want to share with you one other woman that bears her name in another, and you would know who that is, another book of the Bible that bears a woman's name, and that name is Ruth. There was something she said, and I want to lead you to a statement that I think is even more important in Esther than the one that we've come to know, the one that's so familiar to me and to you probably. These two statements tell me what it takes to be here for such a time as this. And it would be the same for us in 2022, living in this land of what used to be the free and the brave. Okay? It's the same thing. There's something that stands behind that. It's not just being here, not just calling yourself a Christian and just hanging out. It wasn't Esther hanging out in the palace. It was much deeper than that. Let's go to that little book of Ruth. 
And we'll come back to Esther. But let's go, let's see. Ruth is after Judges. Ruth is after Judges. Let's go to chapter 1. And I, I, I won't go to any of this other than there was this woman and her husband went with two sons and they went because of famine. They went to, a, to basically a, a, another country. Okay? And the two boys got married and both of them died plus this woman's husband and she is beside herself. Her name was Naomi. Okay? But I want you to see something on Ruth's part. Now Ruth had, you know, Naomi's going to go back. She's going to go back to the homeland. Now, what would you do if you were the daughter-in-law and you were the home that you knew was where these people came to? You'd say, hey, mom, thanks for everything. If there's any way I can help you, let's write, let's keep in touch, right? But I got not, there's nothing for me there. Watch what she says. Um, now, one of the daughter-in-laws did, in fact, return. Let's go to verse um, 16. Um, actually, we should. We got to take a little more than that up. Um, let's start in verse eleven, verse ten. Okay, verse ten. What's happening is Naomi's going to go home, and verse ten, they—that's the two daughter-in-laws—they said unto her, "Surely we will return with thee unto thy people." And Naomi said, "Turn again, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there not yet anyone? Any? Are, are, is there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Well, I've got nothing for you. Turn again, my daughters, go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight and should also bear sons, would you tarry for them till they were grown? Would you stay for them for having husbands? No, my daughters. For it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now she's a very bitter woman. I, I don't want you to miss that. And, and you can see some of this playing out. Okay, but keep going. They lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpha, that would be the one daughter-in-law, kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clave unto her. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. Okay, now, for just a moment, I want you to think about what Ruth is putting herself in a position she's in. Now, we know the story again. Ruth goes back home, goes to Naomi's home, and she meets Boaz, and they, you know, they get married, and they live happily ever after, and the son of David, you know, David comes out of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you can just see, again, is it a province of God? Think of this. This is crazy. There's another one, okay? But I want you to see where Ruth's at. She's a foreigner going to a place that she will be treated as an outcast. Now, Esther became queen. Uh, not so much for Ruth. She was very, very poor. In fact, she would glean and was even having trouble doing that because she was a foreigner. You can, you can read through this book as well. But given that, and she knew how difficult it would be, watch what she says. Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after you. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. That, my friends, is the word I've been looking for because I see the very same thing in Esther, and it is called commitment. That's what we need in this land now. We'll be talking about what commitment is in just a moment. But I want you to see the verse now that's become very important to me in Esther. Esther chapter 4 and verses 15 and 16, which we read a part of it, but let's read it again. After he had said that you... Who would know whether you're here in such a time as this? 
Then Esther bade them, verse 15, chapter 4 of Esther, turn to Mordecai with this answer. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan. Fast for me. Neither eat nor drink. Three days, nights, or day. I also and my maids will fast likewise. Semicolon. Now watch. And so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. But if I perish, I perish. That is commitment. Did you see it? Did you see those two women? That's commitment. Now the question is, what's commitment? What does it look like? I mean, it's what? What does it look like? Well, I've been studying that quite a bit. And I think the best thing that I came across, particularly for us, is we're Christians. We are to be committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that look like? I mean, doesn't it sound good? I can write it on. I could write it up. Be committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'd say, "Amen." That's it. What does that look like? What is that in real terms? Loving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not talking about emotional love. Not going to say that it doesn't have a play, but quite honestly, love is more than that. And you that have been married, husband and wife. Love is more than an emotion. It's got to be. Or you're not married very long. That's how it works, right? No, it's more than that. Marriage is a commitment. Amen. So what's the difference between the love, what we think when you say, I love you, and the commitment type of love? Are you ready? It's three words. Self-sacrificing obedience. Now, I'm talking about love to the Lord Jesus Christ. Self-sacrificing obedience. If you do not obey, and if you do not sacrifice for the Lord Jesus Christ, don't tell me you love him. Because he said it, Jesus Christ said, those that love me will keep my commandments. Our commitment today must be based on love for the Lord Jesus Christ, but love is a self-sacrificing obedience. And that's exactly... What Esther did. She's such a beautiful illustration of that for me. Her life was in danger. Did you see there's something else that comes with commitment? You will never have courage before commitment. Am I too loud today? I'm sorry, but not very sorry. See, it's our commitment. We have a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and courage comes with. Do you, do you not see that in Esther's story? See, the longer they fasted and prayed, the more courage she got because she was committed to doing what God wanted her to do. It's the same with us today. When we're committed to loving the Lord Jesus Christ, when we're willing to sacrifice, when we're willing to obey, courage comes with it. it it's just the way it works. The other thing that's interesting, there was two people in the story in Esther that really had no character. Well, they were characters, but they had no character. The king, who's the most powerful man in the world, his character attributes were just slim. The other one was Haman, correct? You know what they were committed to? Themselves. Pride will never let commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ take effect. It can't because we're too important. Commitment. Does anybody know if it's one T or two? I'm going to go with one. Somebody check me? What time, what time do we, what is it, what time is it? Two T's. Two, is it two T's? Oh, 
you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just put another one all by itself, and we'll put it in there if we need to. <laughs> okay, let's, let's take a look. We're going to go back to John for a moment, and let's watch how Jesus responds to a couple different instances that relay for us a commitment. Um, if, you, if we were going to talk about Peter, what would you say about him? Just, let's just talk about Peter. There's kind of a before and after, isn't there? But let's just talk about Peter before. You know, like he, he wrote First Peter and Second Peter. It was like, I'm going to say, after the resurrection and before the resurrection. Talk to me about Peter before the resurrection. What did he look like? What did he sound like? What kind of guy was he? He was impetuous. He was, he was a loudmouth, wasn't he? He was, he was very boastful. He was proud. You know, in fact, remember the night that Jesus was betrayed? Oh, well, I'm with you to the end. You die, I die, right? Why didn't that work out that way? Because quite honestly, it says he feared, which means he was a coward. Okay? And I'm, I'm not trying to throw rocks at him. Given another situation, that's a very, wouldn't that be an Esther moment? Because you've got this whole gang of Roman soldiers and the Jews. and they, In fact, they pointed him out in the third time that he denied Jesus Christ. I, I've seen you. Oh! And he actually swore and then ran off. But see, this is, the, this is really important. Unless you're committed to Jesus Christ, you certainly couldn't have courage for Jesus Christ. You see, it's a step. But let's go. And let's go to, I don't know where we should go first. We'll go to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. Now, you know that this is a, most of you know that this is a Jesus appearing to the disciples. Um, I'll fill you in with just a few things. Um, if you go to the other Gospels, particularly Luke and Matthew, it talks about the fact that Jesus appeared to the disciples and he said, I want you to go to Galilee and I want you to wait until going to Jerusalem. I will tell you, I will appear to you, and then, then we'll go to Jerusalem and you'll have received the Holy Spirit. In other words, there's a plan here. Just because I'm not with you every day doesn't mean there's not a plan. And I want you to go to Galilee because that would be the safe place to be. Right now in Jerusalem, it's a pretty wild place. There's a lot of stuff going on. Well, what do you think Peter did? And Peter's a leader. Hey, by the way, that's another thing we could say. Did you guys want to add anything to Peter? I didn't give you enough time. What else about Peter? What would you say about him? Anything else? Oh, we hit it. We just nailed it. Close enough. Okay, fair enough. So anyway, Peter is a leader, though. Now, in chapter 21 of John, you'll find that it doesn't seem like they went to Galilee. It seems like they went back to a life that they knew before they knew Jesus. Because Jesus is gone. Oh, it's all over. The kingdom's not coming. They go fishing. Now, I think it's, again, you're talking about the province of God. It's everywhere. <laughs> it's, it's, it's in our lives. Okay? Well, guess what? These fishermen, which were really good, by the way. I am not a good fisherman. There are, any fish is... They are so safe with me at the end of the line. I mean, they got nothing to worry about. I couldn't catch a fish if they jumped in my bucket. I, I, I can't do it. some idea. These guys were commercial fishermen. They were really good. And do you know they fished all night long and did not catch anything? <laughs> now, you talk about having a, oh, a downer moment. And here, at the, at the break of day, here's this guy on the shore. Hey, just put your nets on the other side of the boat. I, I know Peter wanted to say something. <laughs> Who are you? Right? What do you know? But since it hadn't worked all night long, let's go for it. Throw the, boy, throw the net on the other side. And it's like God said, okay, fill the net. <laughs> they can't even pull it in. They finally do start rowing towards shore. And it says that Peter actually 
recognized Jesus, and he swam ahead of the boat as they were trying to grab this haul, you know, in there. Jesus had got breakfast ready. You know, it's just how he is. I don't know. He probably had what? Sausage McMuffins or something. I don't know. You know? Fish, fish McMuffin, something like that. Right? Fish, yeah, and he had, it was all ready, wasn't it? It was all done. It was, it was just made it. But there was another reason he was there. He came to them to break them out of where they were trying to be without him. They were trying to back into another lifestyle that they knew before. And Peter, I know, is the instigator of this. And yet, he came, and he got Peter aside, and let's watch how he acts, how he treats him. Chapter 21 of John, the eat breakfast. (laughs) To me, it's just hilarious. And it says in verse 15, turn down to verse 15, John chapter 21. So when they had dined, (laughs) I like that word, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas. Now that would have been his name before he came to be around Jesus. Jesus always called him Simon Peter. This was Simon, son of Jonas. Lovest thou me more than these? And he actually, that word love, I can't get into this too quick, I keep moving, was agape. And he saith unto him, Yes, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And that love was not agape. It was phileo. It was like a brotherly love. Okay? And Jesus said this, Feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. What does that take? Commitment. There's, you can talk about feeding. I mean, I, if, even us you know, in the, in the cow world, until you literally go out and feed the cows, you haven't fed them. <laughs> it was 17 below zero at the shop yesterday morning. There was a lot of, oh, maybe we'll let it warm up a little bit. <laughs> right. We should feed the cows. We should feed. Did the cows get fed? Not until we feed the cows. It's the same with Jesus saying, feed my lambs. It's to nourish them, to teach them, to take care of them. And Peter wasn't a shepherd. No, he wasn't. Not so much. <laughs> but he got better at it, didn't he? Because Why? Because he learned to be committed. He, understand, he had a new job. He had a new job. That's right. He had, a, he had to get rid of the old Peter. Literally. And you know what? When you're committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, get ready for this. The old you will leave. Because you can't have two lords. Because I, every person in this world today is committed to someone or something. And the only way to make a difference is to be committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way. So he, and then, because he denied him three times, I guess that's what, it makes good sense to me. He saith to him again in verse 16, the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And he saith unto him, yes, Lord, you know that I love thee. And he said, feed my sheep. What's the difference between a lamb and a sheep? Age, yeah, that's right. It seems as such that this is actually a pastoral uh, word that he uses here to feed. It's different than they want to use in feed my lambs. This one here is more of an overarching take care of the entire flock. I want you to care for them all and whatever needs they might have. Not just feeding now, but taking full care of them. Oh, okay. <laughs> you can just see Peter, right? He's Okay. And then he does it again. He said the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto the Lord, Thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus said, I feed my sheep. But one thing that I really have to appreciate about Peter right now, he's, he's so vulnerable, he's not trying to throw smoke and mirrors at anybody. He says, You know my heart. You know me. 
I love you as much as I'm able right now. It basically is what he's saying. You check me. I mean, you know it before I know it. Why are you asking me these questions which you already know the answers to? Feed. That's a commitment of obedience. But I want you to see the sacrificial part of this. How literally this is this is this is Jesus Christ foretelling where Peter was and where ultimately he will be at the last day of his life seeing the difference in what takes place. Now, we're, we usually don't see it this way. We move on, but let's, let's take a look at this. Verily, verily, verse 18, Truly, truly, I say unto you, Peter, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest wherever you would. Now, wait a minute. It, doesn't that size up Peter better than anybody? That's why they're at the sea fishing, because Peter wanted to do that. He did whatever he wanted to do, right? That's who he was. Now, watch. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands. Now, that's, that would have been stated in that day and age. That was part of the context of the language. That means you're going to be crucified. That's what that meant. Whoa, right? And another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldst not. This spake he signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, follow me. Now, that one we miss often because we get caught up in the next saga. But let's just backtrack for just a second. He's basically telling exactly what happened to Peter when he becomes committed is the fact that no longer will you care about what you do for you. You are going to care about what God wants to have you do. And he will be glorified. That's exactly what commitment did to Peter. And it's exact. Now, I'm not saying you're going to be crucified, right? Don't, don't get your, you know, right? But you know what? God will give you the strength, whatever it is. That courage, remember, commitment always comes before courage. The courage will come. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about anything. Be committed. Love the Lord Jesus Christ with self-sacrificing obedience. But he says to Peter right then, and this one we miss, or I do, follow me. Literally. And I think Peter started, but you know what? You know where we always get in trouble with the commitment is the same thing that Peter did on that very second of that very moment. He took his eyes off of Jesus. And he saw John. Well, what about him? You see what? Isn't that exactly what happens to us? We take our eyes off of Jesus and our level of commitment changes almost instantaneously. And Jesus said this. That is the best two words I could possibly think of to remain committed is follow me. <laughs> and then Jesus says this. He says to, uh, well, just watch it. it. It's almost like instant. This is the Peter. He hasn't, he hasn't changed yet. He said unto him, verse 19, follow me. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, that's John, which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? <laughs> Let's talk about him for a moment. And then Jesus goes on, you know what? It does not matter with him. If he stays alive until the rapture or until the second coming, what is that to you? Literally, he's trying to just say, hey, just keep it on your level. And ultimately, we know if you read 1 Peter and 2 Peter, wow, that man changed. And then when ultimately, I mean, we don't have it in the scripture, but uh, what's the right word? Um, not story, but... Uh, Tradition, we go. Tradition says that Peter didn't feel he was worthy to be crucified the same way his Lord was, but to be crucified upside down. I don't even know, I have any idea what that. It was very painful, obviously. 
That's what Peter became. Because why? I'm convinced of the very same thing we need today, and that's self-sacrificing obedience. Courage will come, but the other thing that happens, <clears throat> I didn't write down courage here, because these are things that, quite honestly, have you seen, it seems like Satan, Satan was very active in Haman's life, right? You could see Satan very active. Now, that's another word that's not named, but you could see how he would act in, in Judas Iscariot. In the midst of Jesus Christ on the gathering that very night, it said that Satan entered his heart. Satan is alive and well in America. Satan is alive and well in the world. Now, we don't need to fear him, but we need to pay attention. And do you see what Satan is doing right now at the hands of men and women? Is to divide, to cause fear. The division and fear in this country right now is at an all-time high. And those are the two things that literally, if we're committed, and I'm not just saying us, but when anyone is committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, those two things go away. And here's the other thing that comes along. This is just kind of along for the ride is character. I look, at, I look at Esther, and you know what? Her life was not easy. Ruth's life was not easy. Your lives aren't easy. And yet, if you're committed, as Esther and Ruth were, and as Peter became, you can make a difference. You can be here for such a time as this because you've prepared your heart to be committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we could go to, I, maybe I'll just talk about it because our time's slipping away from us. In John chapter 13, well, let's go, let's go there. You're, you're in John already. Just go back to John chapter 13. And this is an illustration. Not only are we to, when, we, when we're committed, if you're committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, the other thing you'll find is you're committed or you will love your brothers and sisters. And I'm not just talking about family. I'm talking about 1 John chapter 3. Write that one in your notes. 1 John chapter 3, start about verse 13 and in there. Um, anyone that loves his brother singular. I mean, there's a few guys, right? There's a few guys or gals in the Christian, in Christendom, and you say, you know, that's a little bit of a stretch. I'm having trouble right there. But you know what? It is a singular term in 1 John chapter 3. It's every single one. But when we're loving the Lord Jesus Christ with self-sacrificing obedience, then loving our brothers and sisters comes so much easier because Jesus illustrated this on the night that they were gathered. Let's take a look now in John chapter 13 and let's take a look because it even mentions what this is about. John 13 verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover when Jesus knew that his hour was come that he should depart out of this world unto the Father having, watch, loved his own which were in the world and he loved them unto the end. And it says the supper being ended and the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Again, thinking of that in the same room, Satan is busy. He's busy. He's busy everywhere. And now, again, there's only one of him. He's not the opposite of God. Thankfully. Thank goodness. He is a created being that can only be in one place at one time. But he chooses his places wisely and he has a lot of cohorts. They're busy. They're busy. On that night... You know what? And he's also busy amongst the conversation. You know what's going on in this room on this night? These guys are circling, and there probably wasn't a table. That's, that's not right. But they're, they're, you know, on their, they're reclining, if you will, on their elbow. And the guest of honor that night was, I've said it so many times, you know, Judas Iscariot, the one that literally is going to betray Jesus Christ. That very night, Jesus makes him the guest of honor. Is that not love? But the rest of the disciples didn't even know how much love that was. But there's something going on. They were wrestling. 
there was these mental little gymnastics going on that in that room on that night, they were wrestling on who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. In fact, James and John actually had their mother show up, not there, but wanted to know, I'd really like to have my boys, you know, one on each side of you when you get to the kingdom. What do you think? Oh, my goodness, right? That was what was important. But by the way, isn't that so much when we're committed to ourselves? We love ourselves. There's no self-sacrifice. There's self. And you obey what self wants. This isn't hard, is it? It's just amazing. So how is Jesus going to illustrate how to love your fellow man? He gets up. He strips down to his waist. Now, this would have been a little different gathering where they were out that night. Most of the time, this would be in somebody's home, and there would be a servant. There would be a, a bucket, if you will. That's not what they called it, but there would have been a jar or a jug or a bucket or whatever, of which would be utilized to wash the feet of those that were guests. But there was none of that because we were in a foreign place. It's, and all of a sudden, while they're yakking and stacking and going on, carrying on, Jesus slips away silently and grabs all of that that the servant normally would have done, and he starts washing their feet. I'm convinced it got really quiet, really quiet. And he gets to Peter. And, you know Peter, right? You're not going to wash my feet. That's it's beneath you. And then said Peter says, uh, and then Jesus says, well, you'll have none of me. Well, then wash me completely. I want a whole bath. He's just, right? And that's something that's actually important for us as well. When you're Christians, when you've trusted Christ as Savior, and you're going through this world on a daily basis, you know what? Your feet get dirty. There's, there's, there's things that happen to you. You know what? That's called in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He's faithful to forgive you when you repent of those sins. And that's not, you don't, have to, you don't have to get rededicated, recommitted, or find Jesus again. No, it's a one-time deal. You're justified one time. I can't find in the Bible that says you're unjustified. You either are or you're not. But you do get dirty. And that's a perfect example. You need to have your feet washed. You need to get back in fellowship those sins that have removed you, that have tainted you. And that's, they just need a foot bath, okay? So he does that. What do you think is his disciples thought? I don't think there was a lot of, I wonder who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom anymore. And let's watch what Jesus says. Let's go later in chapter 13. I'm going to struggle a little bit here to find it. Verse 34, John 13, 34. Now, this is after Judas has left. In fact, let, let's just pick that. Let, let's, let's pick it up in verse 31. Therefore, when he was gone out, in the verse previous, it says, after we see the sop, then Judas Iscariot left, and it was night. Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and the God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God also... God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whether I go, you cannot come. So now I say to you, verse 34, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. How did he just prove that? How did he illustrate it? By literally sacrificing for those servants. I'm sorry, sacrificing for those disciples on that night. That's literally how he showed them, illustrated to them how to love one another. His commitment to his disciples were to the very end. And then verse 35, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. You see, that's how evangelism works the best. 
when we're willing to sacrifice and to be committed to others and to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's harder for people to stay away from God, right? Today, there's so many reasons not to be there. Remember last week we talked about it maybe long enough ago. There was three responses, the wise men, as they were traveling to, and was, again, is that not commitment? You know, how many, maybe one of those guys, maybe there's 12 of them. There wasn't just three. We're convinced of that, okay? There was three gifts. But you could have, could, could you hear this today? Whoa, man, I'm looking at my calendar, buddy. Um, that's probably going to take us like six to nine months to get there because we're going. They knew where they were going. Not that they followed the star. We talked about that last week. But they knew from Daniel's prophecies that literally Jerusalem was where that Messiah, that area, that was the capital of that nation where that new Messiah, Christos, the anointed one, would be born. And they, that's, buddy, that's six to nine months. I got commitments. I got commitments. How am I doing? Isn't it easy? Do you see how easy? And yet, what did they do? They went. That was a commitment. That's why they were committed to worshiping the king if they were committed to find him. Isn't that, isn't that fantastic? We, find, we just find this everywhere. Now, what was I going to do with that? Oh, something else popped in my head. Well, how, why did, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Because you got the answers to that, right? There was three things that literally the world responds to the Lord Jesus Christ. One is... Just like Herod, I'm going to help you. Hatred. They hate Jesus Christ. And there are many people that I run into that hate God. And a lot of times it comes down to this. If, and it takes a while. You have to wait. This is, this is relational. You've got, to, you've got to spend time with. You've got to get there. You don't just, you know, if you want to just get in their face and debate. That's a, that's a dead deal. But if you're committed enough to find out where they're coming from, most of the time those people have had something happen in their childhood where their mother, their father, a close relative of some kind was taken from them with cancer, whatever it was, and they blame God for that. And then what happens, that's what bitterness does to anyone's heart, whether you're a Christian, non-Christian, is it literally destroys you from the inside and alienates you from the very God that loves you. Most of the time that's where that comes from. And then the second one, which is probably how the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, all of those guys, they were very indifferent. And now that's the one that's the vast majority of the country in which we find ourselves. Oh, who cares? I mean, who cares? Right? Don't you hear that all the time? God schmod, who brought the world? We're here. Uh, you know, we came from whatever. We're here, though. It doesn't matter, right? Don't you hear that? It just doesn't matter. And then the third one is adoring, adoration. And you know how you get there? You're committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we need in America today is for us in the church particularly to start. We've got to start with us. Are we committed? Are we committed to loving the Lord Jesus Christ? In other words, sacrificially obeying his words that he's given to us? The Esthers, the Ruths. And again, I, I don't want to, I, I always like to see that, you know, those little details that are just spoken of in the scripture. I mean, how many times do we focus on the fact that her mother and her father were dead when she was very young? There was pain there. Or Ruth. You, know, you could give a thousand reasons why I shouldn't go back to that place. I don't even know anybody there. Right? And yet, what makes the difference in the scriptures makes the same difference in our world today. Are you committed? Don't worry about the courage. Sometimes I've wondered about that. I've played through what if I get to the end of life and someone walks in with an arm, an arm, you know, a rifle or whatever, and they say, okay, whoever a Christian I'm going to kill. You ever played that in your mind? How will I respond? Yeah. You know what? If you're committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, it takes care of itself. 
But the one, the story I really do love, though, is there was there was there was people that had come into this church setting in Russia, and you know you just don't show up. You know we're we're supposed to meet at three, so that means three ten our time. That's that's Larry's standard time, right? Ten minutes late to everything, and so you you come and everybody sort of shows up at the same time. Oh no 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 no! That's not the way it works when you're in a persecuted arena. No, in fact, what could happen in the sense of if it was just this gathering here, we may take four or five hours. One would come. 30 minutes later, maybe someone else. And again, off, not, no, no scheduling at all. And then you're finally there, and it's probably dark, and it's in a place that is certainly not announced. And on this particular setting, there was a group of people in there, and they were singing. And again, singing probably quietly, but worshipfully. Okay, you, you know the difference. See, we just think of the, uh, the advantages we have in America today so far. And it's going pretty fast. But anyway, so all of a sudden, without any knocking, two guys come in. They, they just come in and they, they are armed. All right, you have one chance. If there's anybody that wants to renounce your faith in Jesus Christ, you may leave right now. This is your last chance because we're going to shoot everybody else. And there was a few, you know, you know, right? There was a few of them, they just shot out. Okay, anybody else? One more person. They closed the door, put the rifles down, and said, now we know that the saints are really here. Let's worship God together. <laughs> now that should have sorted it out, right? But you know what? Those that were left, what could you say about those? That's commitment. And every one of those saints in the Old Testament and the New Testament that you see and follow their lives, it's not just that they were here for such a time as this. That's not the issue. The issue is they were truly committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Self-sacrificing obedience. Okay. Questions or comments? See, if we, if we get into that, I tell you what, 2022 could be pretty awesome. No, no rifles here. Well, actually, there is. Actually, actually, there is. Actually, there is. Let me grab one of those real quick. Let's test your commitment. No. There isn't another church in the world probably has a... I don't know, but... All right. All right, fair enough. Um, just trying to think if I had one other verse. Um, yeah, you know what? If, if you don't mind, one more verse, which I've, it just, I wrote it down... Let's go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> Verses 1 and 2. This is really what, this is, this is what Paul is literally saying in Romans. Is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you. This is like a command, if you were. It's, it's an authoritative word. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, because of His mercies, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Did you see it? In that same verse, we had sacrificial obedience, if you will. Service. Keep going. Verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That is what commitment looks like right there. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Okay. I probably was a little bit loud today, but you dealt with it fine, so... 
Any questions, comments? If, let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you for the day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for allowing us to see so many illustrations, so many people that actually lived, breathed, and walked in this world. Walked in this world. The Esthers, the Ruths, the Daniels, the Abrams, the Pauls. Father, even the Peters. Sometimes I feel more like Peter, Father. But you were right there, coaxing, coaching, bringing along, and he got it. He went to the ultimate sacrifice the end of his life, to glorify God. Father, that's what it's about here. Our commitment is not to give us any medals of honor or anything along that. No, 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 no. It's about you receiving glory and that others would find the Lord Jesus Christ as well. Father, our world right now is very, very messed up. The things that it's captured by, fear, divisiveness, all of those things that are taking away literally are Satan's tools to demolish and to desecrate a world that you created. Father, may you give us commitment. May you give us that love, that sacrificial obedience that we need. We even know that's a gift from you, but as we focus on you, just as Peter, perfect example, I've missed it many times, the Lord Jesus Christ said, follow me, and just for an instant he did, and then he turned, his eyes left Jesus. Father, keep our eyes on Jesus. Even as he told his disciples on that night as they were gathered around the, that, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, he said, be praying or you'll fall into temptation. What a perfect example, Father, for us. When we're praying, it's hard to be tempted. Father, may we be committed to you. Thank you for this new year. Thank you, Father, for the opportunities that you will afford us. We'll need strength. And as we're committed to you, you'll give us courage and you'll build our character. Father, what a great God you are. You are worthy of our praise at all times. We yield and bow before you. Thank you for your humble servants that we're able to see working, even Mordecai, Father. As he was paraded around the city of Shushan in a way that should have, or would have, captured his pride, his ego, that, Father, it says he just went back to the king's gate doing what he did. That's truly a man that's committed to you. May it be said of us. May each and every day that goes along, may we continue to grow in our commitment to you. Thank you for the day. Thank you for your love. Thank you for all of the things that were accomplished through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.